or you could translate it, rejoice in the Lord, right? And that is a picture of that when we, when we sing together. I want you to actually turn there, Psalm 33. And while you do, I want to tell a parable that kind of, I don't know if I call it a parable, an illustration, all right, uh, to illustrate the fact that who says something makes a difference as to what that something means, okay, and whether or not you're going to act on it, okay? So, for example, let's say you are sitting in a big plane, like the one I just said would crash if you all were the passengers, okay? Uh, so, a nice big plane, and you sit next to a, uh, let's just say, a lady who looks very, very terrified, okay? And she's, like, shaking, okay? And she's sweating, and you're like, hey, are you okay? And she says, I've never flown before. And you're like, oh, okay, I'm sorry. Um, and you don't say anything else after that, okay? And uh, the, the plane, how many of you have flown before, by the way? Most, okay, most of y'all, nice, it's, it's fun, okay. Is anyone in here actually really afraid of, afraid, afraid of flying? Okay, there we go, at least one, not to call you out. I'm a little bit terrified every time that it takes off, so I'm, I'm a little bit like, okay. I, actually, I always say a prayer, like, God, if this is it, it's been a good time. <laughs> At least it'll be quick, probably, you know. I always just kind of, uh, I don't need to go into that. Okay, so I'm sitting, you're sitting there, and there's a lady next to you who is just terrified, shaking, sweating, okay. You, uh, you go down the runway, you're taxiing, and then suddenly, you know, the, they're cleared for landing. You, has, you take off, you feel the, okay. And then as soon as you're up in the air, uh, you start doing a bank, but then there's starting to be some shaking and some weirdness, okay. All right, if the lady next to you turns to you and says, we're about to crash! All right. Or do you, at that moment, conclude that you're actually about to crash? Okay, no, no, you don't. Very good. You pass the test. Okay, but what if in that moment, the, the pilot comes on and says, <clears throat> excuse me, um, we are about to crash, so please buckle your seatbelts and make sure your tray tables are up and say your prayers or something like that. Okay, if that happened, would you actually be, believe that that was going to happen? Hopefully. Okay. My point is, who says something depends on, on whether or not you act on it. Okay? Are you guys at Psalm 33? Did you guys turn there? Okay. We are in this series called Foolish, where we're talking about the gospel. And so far, we've had two weeks really talking about it. The first week was, why do we preach the gospel to ourselves? Why is it important that we're reminding ourselves of the gospel on a regular basis? And the other week was, why do we share the gospel with others? That was two weeks ago. Why is it important for us and what motivates us to actually share this good news with other people, those that don't yet understand it or don't believe it, okay? Now, we are jumping into the deep end of the gospel. So, the gospel begins with G. The gospel begins with G. And G stands for? Anyone? Any guesses? Gangster. <laughs> That's right. No. Okay. Wrong. <laughs> yeah. What is that? That's actually a really good guess. That's what I should have said. All right. But what I was going to say is God. Okay. The gospel begins with God. The gospel message originates with God. It's God's message. And so when we think about it, the first thing we need to address is actually the author of the message, in a sense. Who is this God? And so Psalm 33 is a psalm of, of praise, but it, 
extols God for who he is, and I think it does a magnificent job of walking through many reasons that we should trust him and many reasons that, that we should praise him as the God of the Bible and as the God who ultimately tells us what's true and what's not true and what the gospel is. So let's jump in. Psalm 33. We're going to walk through essentially four reasons to rejoice in the Lord and to trust in the Lord. So if you read um, verse 1, shout for joy in the Lord, all you righteous. Praise befits the upright. These first three verses walk through essentially a, what we could call a like we often uh, we have actually every week here, right? And we actually use this text. I asked that we could start with this, so it was at least in your mind uh, after, or for the first songs, right? Uh, this is very common in the Psalms to start with, like, rejoice, all right? But it almost never ends there, okay? If it just ends with rejoice, then, like, if I was just to, like, come up to you and be like, be happy! Like, it's kind of, <laughs> that's pretty good. Um, but <laughs> the, the point is, usually people would be like, why? Okay, why do you want me to rejoice? And the psalmist is really kind to us and tells us why we should rejoice. So, verse 4, we get into it. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. So in these first two verses of explaining why we should have rejoice in the Lord, uh, I think we can summarize that by saying it's because God is good. So our first reason is God is good. If you look at verse, verse 4, for the word of the Lord is upright, uh, and all his work is done in faithfulness. In the Psalms, you have a thing called parallelism, and you often, in fact, almost always see two lines one after another. So there's one line that's not indented. That's usually the first one. And then there's an indented line directly following it. Do you guys see that? You guys see that in the text? So, and it just keeps on going like that, all right? So the parallelism just refers to this fact that it seems like these two lines are related, okay, almost every time. And now for verse 4 and 5, here's what I want to show you. I think that verse, for verse 4, the first line refers to God's internal goodness in some sense and then the second line of verse four is his external expression of his goodness and then it does it again so verse five internal and then external okay so internal the word of the lord is upright word this this immediately should make you think of genesis one what happens in genesis one god speak a lot of things happen i'm sorry i'm like come on guys you're like uh okay well let's see uh he does a lot of things in Genesis 1. God creates the wor- world through his word, okay? And he says, let there be and things happen. We're going to talk about that a lot tonight. But the, the first thing is that when we're talking about the word, we're talking really about his counsel, like what is going on inside of him that produces this, this counsel and this decision to do something, okay? So the word really kind of means his reasoning, his wisdom, and then that the word itself is like a bridge to the action happening, okay? So when, then he expresses the word, and then, and then things happen, okay? So it's like word originates in God, he speaks it, and then boom, stuff happens. Is with me? Word, okay. Cool. Word. You guys get it? Like? <laughs> Boo. Okay, moving on. Uh, the word. What is, what is it about the word? Um, the word of the Lord is 
upright. Okay, so this counsel, this wisdom of God, his internal decision-making is upright. And the word there actually just means like straight. So it's talking about moral goodness. Okay, upright, straight, like a straight line. That's God's internal moral compass is straight. Okay, we often use the term like crooked for someone that is morally uh, corrupt, we could say. Okay, in this case, it's talking about his moral goodness. Everything that God thinks, everything that God says is morally straight. Okay, it's perfectly good. It's right. Uh, so, again, we're, kind of, we're, we're looking on an internal sense to some degree, and, and we could say that God's motivations are pure as well, okay? And then if you look, so I'm saying that, if we're just talking about internal for a second, the word of the Lord is upright, and then you look at verse 5, look at verse 5, he loves righteousness and justice. This again seems to refer to him internally, like he has a passion for what is right and what is just, so internally, he is just absolutely perfectly pure. So if you were to take God, <clears throat> go with me on that. I mean, like, we, we can't do this and we, we won't ever do this. But if you were to, like, cut him open and look inside, if you will. Look at his heart. Okay. Are there any anatomy people in here who have actually like, cut open a cadaver and looked at a heart? Okay. I've heard that's interesting. Okay. So anyway, if you were to cut open God and look at his heart, what you would see is perfect Perfection, perfect purity, okay? Perfect whiteness. When, when, when Jesus is described in the transfiguration, he is perfectly white. And it describes his clothes as being bleached like no one on earth can bleach them. Okay, that's like how it tries to describe it. It's just absolutely, entirely, completely, perfectly pure and without blemish, okay? So when we describe God's internal goodness, he is absolutely perfect. And that means that he, his motivations are absolutely perfect and pure. When, you, when we look around at ourselves, often it's easy to compare ourselves to God and accidentally attribute things to God that we've seen in each other. And I don't know about you, but I know my motivations are often corrupted and mixed. Even for the, my, on my best days, the best things I've ever done, there's a little part of me that does it for my own glory or, or does it because I want someone to see it and, and think I'm a good person or something like that. God is not like that. He is absolutely perfect in all of his internal motivations. And if you, if you notice verse 5 also, he loves righteousness and justice. I think this is another way of saying that God is holy. He has this passion for everything that is absolutely perfectly right. And he has a passion for justice, seeing right things rewarded and wrong things put, put right, essentially, but, but ultimately also punished. And this inner love and passion should scare us a little bit. Because if you, if, you if you actually were to, to meet him, I think that would be a terrifying thing to realize he has this zeal for what is perfect and a zeal for justice. We need to understand that about God. And I think we can describe that as his holiness. He is in some ways frighteningly good. C.S. Lewis put it like this. Uh, he's describing through a character, he's describing Aslan, and he says, he's not a tame lion, but he is good, right? He's not, he's not tame. Like, we shouldn't, we shouldn't make, a, make a puppy out of God and his goodness. No, his goodness is this white, hot affection for everything that is righteous and just. That's his goodness. 
but we can trust that goodness. So that's him internally. And then we see externally. So again, this parallelism, if we look at those indented lines, and all his work is done in faithfulness. You can think of it like, <clears throat> like this. Again, word internal going into external. Internally, he's perfect. And then externally, everything that comes out of him is done in faithfulness to who he is, which means everything arrives at its de desired target. So if you're thinking about like a, like a gun, when you, when you shoot a bullet out of a gun, oftentimes it doesn't hit exactly the target as it was pointed at the target, right? You have to account for all of these different things, and if you're like me, you just didn't miss entirely the target, okay? But for God, that's not the case, okay? Everything he does is done in faithfulness, meaning he sees his work through to the end perfectly, and everything he does is perfect. Everything that he does is as perfect as he is perfect. All of his work is done in faithfulness. And then notice verse 5, that second line, again, external. What happens with this love for righteousness and justice? The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Okay, so his, his works express themselves on every inch of the world so that every inch of the world is covered in God's goodness. <clears throat> Sorry, excuse me. I think this, is, this, this last line, I want you to think about it for a moment because it's actually harder to accept than you might think. Because it's easy on the one hand to be like, yeah, God is, yep, he's good. I know he's good. I know he's righteous. I know I've heard this before. But then you get to the, the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Well, that means that my life is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. And depending on your station in life, that could be easy to believe or extremely difficult to believe. Uh, I heard recently of a I wasn't even associated with the person, but a 20-year-old guy died. I don't, I don't know anything about it. But I heard, okay, this, this guy close to your guys' age, just, I don't, I don't know what happened, but he, he died, okay? So when we see events like that, and they touch your lives, if they haven't already, I'm sure that they have in, to some degree or another, in some personal way or another, when these things happen, do we then say, well, maybe God took away his, his steadfast love for a minute? No. We... we Somehow we have to hold these things in tension and say, no, the earth is still full of the steadfast love of the Lord, meaning every minute of my life, his steadfast love is still present. And, and Jesus describes the Father as being good to both the good and the evil. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. So God and his steadfast love, he, he's, he's never unfaithful to his own word, and he's never not good to anyone. Sometimes he expresses his goodness in justice, but we have to hold these things together and, and realize, actually, every minute of our lives is, is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. And when good things do happen, we are so quick to just attribute them to chance or just forget the Lord altogether. And when, when bad things happen, when things that we don't want happen, it's so easy to just forget the Lord or, or to accuse him of wrongdoing. That's why when we talked about discontentment, I don't know if you remember that over the summer, we talked about discontentment and said, when we're discontent, we're actually accusing God of injustice. Because we're saying, I sh this circumstance should not be true, but it is true. And so, God, you've done something wrong. And that's a sin. Because it accuses God of being something he's not, which is absolutely pure. And everything that he is and everything that he does. So, God is absolutely, purely good. That's the first thing the psalmist points out. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord, and he loves everything that's right and true and just. Okay, so that's the first point. God is good. 
And the second point we need to know about God, this author of the gospel, is that he is powerful. And when the, the biblical writers talk about God's power, they almost always go back to creation. So they do right here. Verse 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. So we're, he's describing this, the creation of the world. And I would encourage you, when we think about the gospel, when we, when we preach the gospel to ourselves, not to leave out creation. Because creation is actually vital to our understanding of the gospel. First of all, I mean, we can just see his power in, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Okay, just, just picture this for a moment with me. Okay, uh, By his word, the heavens were made. You guys have probably, I hope, read Genesis 1 and been taught it to some degree. But this really is worth just using your imagination for a moment. Okay, so picture absolute nothingness. And then he says, let there be the earth, for example. Let there be the earth. And then, and it's there. That, that is, I mean, and again, <clears throat> I'm calling this kind of unimaginable. Because it really is difficult for us to comprehend the force of this kind of power. And again, he, he by the breath of his mouth, he created all the host of the heavens. He's talking about all the stars. So everything that we see was created by his, just his mere breath. Effortless is the point, I think. Now, I think the next point actually gives it an image that we can work with a little bit more. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. This is verse 7. It's talking about the creation uh, and the separation of the land and the sea when God did that. Okay? So, sorry. Benjamin was smiling at me. <laughs> and I thought, I literally thought, is my fly down? Okay, sorry. <clears throat> I'm, sometimes I'm too honest, I think. Okay, so, I'm sorry. Back to the text. Back to the text, everybody. Now everyone's looking. I think that my fly's good. Now, Verse 7, he gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. We're talking about the separation of the land and the sea. <laughs> what are you doing, Benjamin? <laughs> okay. So again, God's control of water in Scripture is actually really significant because water seems to be symbolic of chaos and a lack of control. So... Think about this. You can never like, really pick up very much water without a container for it. But if you just have your bare hands, it's like, almost impossible to stop it. Or if you're spilling it, you can't just like, put it back in as it's spilling out. It's, it's, it's the most uncontrollable thing. And that's why also things like tsunamis and floods are the most damaging things, or among them, that nature can bring against a city or a home. Because water just gets everywhere. It destroys everything. And so it kind of it symbolizes in the Bible, oftentimes, this chaos. Okay, this lack of control. But what does God do? He gathers water as a heap, and he puts deeps in storehouses. Okay, he literally taking like the depths of the ocean, and he has ultimate and like control of that water. So just picture this. Okay, <clears throat> pretend you you met Jesus. Okay, and you're just with with him. Okay, <laughs> all right. So 
what if he, that it started to rain, okay? And he saw one raindrop and he said, stop. And it stopped like right above his finger right there, okay? And he said, all right, go back. And it went back, okay? <laughs> you guys picture that? All right, that would be pretty impressive, all right? It'd be like, whoa, okay, he has control of a raindrop. That's, that's kind of crazy. Okay, I'm going to move up now. Okay, what if you had a glass of water and you spilled it all over the floor like I was talking about? And he said, okay, stop, and all this water is going everywhere. It stops, and he says, go back. And it just goes back into the cup, lying sideways. He'd be like, whoa, okay, that's kind of crazy. <laughs> all right, what about a river? I was a raft guide for a while. The power of a river is pretty ridiculous, okay? So what if you're rafting down a river, and then at one moment he says, stop. The river just literally stops in motion. Then he says, go back. And it just goes right back where it came from. I want you to actually picture it for a second. It just goes <laughs> back up the mountain. <laughs> That'd be kind of nuts, okay? What if it was a tsunami, okay? You're standing on the shore. There's a massive tsunami coming. People are running for their lives. And then, but Jesus shows up and he says, okay, stop. And it's this, I don't know, how many, how tall is a tsunami? Anybody know? I was going to look this up when my computer died. I think it's like 30, 30, 40 feet, something like that. Several stories tall. There you go. Okay. Massive. And he just says, stop. And that wall of water stops. And he says, all right, go back. And it just, it just retreats. Okay. Are you following me so far? Okay. He just takes entire oceans with all of the power there and says, I'm going to put you in a bottle. Okay, he has no trouble with the most powerful things we can think of on this earth. And uh, on top of that, the most powerful things we can't really think of in, in our universe, okay? Uh, this is his, his power. He, he reorders chaos. And, and yet, we can, we can nod and say, okay, I believe he can do that. And then in our lives, when we have a mess, if you will, we so easily just conclude that it is beyond repair. And if, you, if we follow the, the water example, okay, say our life is a glass of water and we drop it. This happens to me all the time. And it seems like what, what's happened is essentially irreparable. God is able to repair that. God is able to take that, that chaos that has happened from your sin and other people's sin and actually reorder it, reorganize it, and breathe life into it again. I mean, the ultimate instance of this is resurrection, right? That someone dying and blood stopping flowing, those cells rupturing all over the body, right? There's no oxygen, and yet, and, and decay starts to happen, and then God says, no, live. And blood starts flowing again, and cells come back together, right? This is the power of God that we're talking about. And in our lives, he has that, that same power in every aspect of our lives. Now, we don't necessarily see it in the same way, like I break my arm and I'm like, be healed, because God usually is like, no, I want you to learn from the fact that you just broke your arm, okay? Um, don't, don't go skateboarding anymore. You stink at skateboarding, Paul. Um, that actually hasn't happened, but I am terrible at skateboarding. Uh, God's power, okay? God is powerful. Now, I want you to notice verse, uh, verse 8. What's the, what's, what should be our reaction to God's power? 
Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. If we actually take a moment and walk through the creation story and him breathing out everything that we know and then forming man out of dust and breathing life into him, that will actually stop us in our tracks and say, okay, who are we dealing with here? If we really believe it, it's not just a parable. It's not just a story that we tell ourselves or that your parents told you to get you to obey as a little kid. If this is actually the real God we're, we're talking about, how does that change the way that you approach him? It should change the way that you approach him. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world, us included, stand in awe of him. For, why? He spoke and it came to be. Boom. He commanded and it stood firm. You guys ever been to Yosemite National Park or Zion? Okay. Yes. <laughs> I know you've been to Zion. I haven't been to Zion. Okay. A couple people. Well, there's, there's massive walls of granite, just unimaginable, okay? And I, when I thought about what is a picture of something standing firm, that wall of granite might be the, the closest thing on this earth I can think of, right? Uh, obviously, no matter how many people were to push against that, it's not, it's not moving, all right? God just said, stay, and there was the earth. So we are called to fear God. And his power is, is meant to bring us to a, a place of, of fear, of healthy fear of who it is we're dealing with. So I've said we, that God is good. I think that's what the psalmist says in verses 4 and 5. And then that he is powerful in 6 through 9. But really, being, being good and being powerful has implications. And the, one of the implications that the psalmist goes with this is that God is sovereign, okay? So he's good, and he's incredibly powerful, and the first example was over nature, and now he's going to say he's not only powerful over nature, he's actually powerful throughout history. God is sovereign over everything that happens from the first moment until now, kind of going along with that. He was, everything that he does is good, and all of his work is done in faithfulness. Well, now we see the, the working out of his goodness, his faithfulness, and his power in his sovereignty over all of history. So look at Verse 10, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom he has chosen as his heritage. So we see a comparison happening. Do you see it? In verses 10 and 11. Verses, verse 10, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. That's the first thing, the counsel of nations and the plans of peoples. And then in verse 11, the counsel, notice that repeated word, the counsel of the Lord in comparison or in contrast, we should say, stands forever and the plans of his heart to all generations. So again, counsel, counsel, plans, plans, verses 11, uh, 10 and 11. So what are these two things? What is counsel and what is plans? I think counsel goes back to the idea of this internal decision on the part of the Lord. This is what I'm going to do, okay? Or on the, count, or on the part of, of nations. 
So council kind of gets at this, the wisdom and then and what they're, gonna, they're planning to do based on their, their understanding of life, okay? So my counsel might be tonight, I, uh, you know, it would be good for me to go to bed early because I have a sore throat, okay? Yeah, I think that would be good, all right? And then the plan is I'm going to go to bed early when I get home, okay? So I make a plan based on my counsel. So my counsel has to do with, with what I know and my wisdom, and the plan is the outworking of that counsel in the future. So what does God do? <clears throat> he brings the counsel of the nations. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Sorry, guys. I should probably just like... <clears throat> okay. I really, really feel for sometimes for the people that listen, if there is anybody, to the recordings, you know. Uh, <laughs> okay. What's that? Yeah, that's right. Um, so what does the Lord do? He brings the council of the nations to nothing, okay? So when a nation, well, let me think about this context for a second. Why is it talking about nations and peoples? What is it talking about? Well, if you, so far in the Psalter, there has been a theme actually developed. We're at Psalm 33, and there actually, it actually develops somewhat over the course of the Psalter. And in Psalm 2, it talks actually, this is one of the most uh, fundamental psalms. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are like the gateway to all of the psalms and in many ways set the tone. And in Psalm 2, it describes the Lord setting his Messiah king on Zion, okay, in Jerusalem. Okay, so it's describing God putting Jesus on the throne. At the time, they didn't know that Jesus was his name, but they knew he was talking about the Messiah, okay? And nations and peoples plot against him, okay? The nations essentially are his enemies. Why, the text says, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of earth have set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. They are coming against God, okay? So there's this idea that the, in general, and we see this, nations and peoples are enemies of, of God especially in the Old Testament in, the, in this context, right? Israel is, is God's people, and they are always under attack. And so we come here. God brings the counsel of these nations, these enemies, to nothing. It's like you can picture all of their sage, wise men gathering and saying, we should do this. No, we should do this. Okay, well, no, we're going to do this. And then all of them agree, no, this is the best plan. Yes, okay. And then, like, all right, let's go do it. And then somehow it just absolutely falls apart, right? <clears throat> Again, one of my favorite examples of this is when Hezekiah was entirely surrounded by an army of Assyrians. And we talked about this uh, when we talked about pride because this king was so prideful and he just scoffed at God. But uh, that is the Assyrian king, whereas Hezekiah, the Jewish king, was calling on the Lord and trust in the Lord. And so in a moment, the obvious, I mean, everything was against them. There was no reason that they would win it. And Hezekiah simply cried out to the Lord and said, please, please, Lord, save us. And, and he said, for the sake of your name, save us. And then it's so funny. In just a moment, the angel of the Lord goes out and kills almost like, I think it's 20,000 of the Assyrian army. Just in one night, and they go home. And that's it. Okay, their plans came to absolutely nothing. God frustrates and brings to nothing these counsels and plans. Okay, in contrast, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. And the plans of his heart 
to all generations. Again, I want to well, point out that this, this idea of standing forever in verse 11, the counsel of the Lord, his, his counsel, his ideas, when he sets his mind to do something, it's as good as Yosemite granite. It's as good as him saying, there. And it's not going to move. It's not going to change. It is absolutely trustworthy when God says something. The plans of his heart stand for all generations. So again, if we, if we think of this trajectory of now history working out, God is going to work every single piece of history toward the end that he had in mind from the very beginning. And it's never going to be frustrated. So when he makes a promise, this is where it matters, when God makes a promise, he's going to make it good. Absolutely, certainly, without fail. And we need to understand that because he makes a lot of promises to us. For example, when he says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I think most of us in this room have staked our life on that fact that we are saved if, if we just call on him. And his sovereignty has to be true or else we could be hoping in a lie. We could hope be hoping in something that doesn't actually happen. But this is just such a, a beautiful and a wonderful thing. God is absolutely sovereign, and whatever he says is going to happen, it will absolutely happen. And so there will be a day when the Lord comes back. And there will be a day when our dead bodies, or if we're living, these corrupted bodies are changed into bodies like his. That is the belief of the Christian. And it has to be, and, and we found that belief on God's sovereignty, on this fact that his counsel stands forever in the plans of his heart to all generations. The Lord does not change his mind. Praise the Lord for that. And, that. and that's exactly where the psalmist goes. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. Right? They're talking about Israel here. God chose Israel. And blessed is that nation because God chose them and he is so good and he is so powerful that everything he ever promised to them is going to come true. That's amazing. And similarly, we can say, blessed is the, the church, the people that he saved in this age, who he has called to himself, and he has made promises to, because he's, he's not going to go back on his promise. So, God is good, and God is powerful, and he's also sovereign and wise in everything that he does. And this is the foundation of the gospel, because... Who says something matters. I have one last point, and I think the psalmist has one more point, and that is that God is ultimately for us, and we need him to be for us. So if we look in verse 13, the Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds you're going to see the world and history playing out before God. And verse 16, kind of a funny change of subject. The king is not saved by his great army. What's with the king? A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. What? The horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. I want you to note a couple of words in there. Saved, delivered, salvation, rescue. 
there's an implication here that we need saving. The, there's a context here that the psalmist is just assuming, and that is in, in light of who this God is, here's us under his eye, and we need saving. In this case, it's talking about literal military saving, which was a very real need to an Israelite. But there is a, a, a bigger idea there too. And, and the, the psalmist is pointing out, there's so many things that you might put your hope in. You might put your hope in this strength of an army or, or the strength of a warrior or, the, or how good of a horse they've got. But at the end of the day, there's something implied here. Okay, the king is not saved. The warrior is not delivered. The war horse is a false hope. We can think of a lot of, of similar things in our lives that are false hopes, false salvations that we ultimately put our, our hope in. Um, some of the ones we run to on a regular basis is being good enough for God, right? And actually, and just, just living uh, a good enough life that God accepts us, right? That's a false hope of salvation. You're never going to get to God that way. Um, or in, in, in just the, the day-to-day things, we might think, well, my life needs to get a lot better because I, I know there's so many things falling apart. So maybe if I find the right spouse, or maybe if I find the right career path, or the right school, and the right degree, and, and, and the right place to live, ultimately the right job, we, we start to line these things up and think, these things are, are going to make me happy, Right? In many ways, those things are also false hopes. And they are trying to appeal to our, our sense of, I, I need saving. But there's a deeper thing that, that need, is needed, and there's only one Savior. And that's what the psalmist is trying to point out. So if we look at verse 18, he, he doesn't even say it. It's kind of amazing. It's like, look, all of these things are not good enough to save. Well, what about the God that we just talked about? What about, what about this God who's good and powerful and sovereign? What about him? Is he going to save? Is there a way to get him on our side? Verse 18, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. I just want you to look at verse 18. It's so crazy simple. The eye of the Lord is on. It's almost as if just looking at us is, is enough to save us. He's, he's looking with an eye toward that he may, verse 19, deliver, right? He's watching to deliver who? Those who fear him. Those who hope in his steadfast love. Notice that those two things are put together. You fear that power of God. And you hope in his goodness, in his steadfast love, in his faithfulness. And that's all that's required. For God to be on your side is that you fear him and you hope in him. You submit to him out of reverence for him and you trust him and his goodness that he's going to make good on his word. And so in verse 20, I just want to remind you actually this whole psalm starts with shout for joy in the Lord. Reciting the gospel to ourselves is going to be a source of incredible encouragement and joy because we're reminding ourselves of who this God is. Who is God? He's, he's good. He's powerful. He's in control. 
And that just floods you when you believe it and when you understand it and when you dig deeper into it. It floods you with joy. Our soul, so then this is what the, what the congregation, after kind of walking through all of this, I'm saying congregation because often these psalms were probably used in some kind of a, a setting kind of like this. Um, and they would, they would sing it or recite it together, and then they would say together, wow, we've just been reminded of these truths. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. And then it finishes with this prayer. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. And in essence, Lord, because we've set our hope in you, we know that you've promised to, to let your steadfast love rest on us in every sense and your mercy and your grace and your goodness. So I would just encourage you to, as we, as we walk through the gospel, the, the first thing, the gospel starts with G, God, okay? And if you are reminding yourselves of these things on a regular basis, it'll be such an encouragement. Encourage yourself with the fact that God is good. He's absolutely perfect in everything that he does. And that, that means that we can't accuse him of wrongdoing in our lives, and we can look at our circumstances and trust that he has laid it out and worked it out and will work it out for our good too, because he is good. And God is incredibly powerful. Remind yourself of, of the fact that he created all things. And he's still absolutely in control of not only creation, but of people and history that he's going to direct it to a certain end without fail. That's your God. He's sovereign. And finally, he's actually, he's on your side. He's for you if you put your hope in him. And that's where the gospel begins. Uh, I'm going to pray for us and invite the band to come up and then we'll, uh, we'll sing one last song. Um, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this psalm that is such an encouragement and a reminder of who, who you are and, and who it is that we are listening to when we hear and respond to the gospel, this message that, that you created all things, that you are a good and loving and powerful God, that we broke covenant with you, that we fell into sin, that we need a savior, and that you made a way to be just by sending your son to die on a cross in our place to pay for our sins and to make reconciliation between us and you so that we can have a relationship with you, so you can bless us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, so you can resurrect us even as you resurrected Christ. Lord, I don't want these truths to just fall on my own deaf ears. I don't want to live like they don't mean anything, Father. Would you let the gospel, Lord, please saturate each of our souls um, so that we live out of its truth, Lord. And I pray that we would worship you uh, in spirit and truth, uh, even now. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.